Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. We're so excited to welcome Stuart O'Nan. Apparently, you guys have all planned with your football gear, so that's great. And baseball gear. Stuart is the author of over 15 novels, as well as screenplay, collection of short stories, and two works of nonfiction about baseball. His latest book, West of Sunset, tells the story of the final days of F. Scott Fitzgerald. After financial ruin and marital troubles, Fitzgerald heads west to try for a new start in Hollywood. It's a difficult story told here with grace and compassion. Now, without further delay, here he is, Stuart O'Neill. Thank you, Becca. Thank you. Thank you. Put this down here. Uh, Thanks for coming out. I appreciate it. Here, and as the airport reminded me, the home of the AFC champion, Denver Broncos. How about that? Uh, last time I was here at the Colfax store was 2007, and the Red Sox had just beaten the Rockies. So this is, I guess, payback, I suppose. And uh, good luck. Good luck to Peyton. Um, I, I am faster than him. I am more accurate than him, I think. My, my, I can throw with a spiral, which he can't anymore. But I understand. It's his, it's his farewell tour. He has to go out on a high note. It's either that or it's Cam Newton's coronation, one or the other. The NFL, I'm sure, is very, very happy. Uh, either way, it's a win for them, and we're going to forget completely about the concussions and the abuse of women and the use of steroids. and HGA. We're going to forget, all, we'll forget about that, and we'll concentrate, as we should, on the commercials. Um, why am I writing about F. Scott Fitzgerald in these, his last days in Hollywood, 1937 and 1940? I'll answer that by quoting a better writer than myself, Mr. Fitzgerald himself, talking about his dear, dear friend, Ring Lardner. Uh, when Fitzgerald lived on the North Shore of Long Island, he and Lardner were very, very close. Uh, they, they partied together, they drank together, they talked crap about other writers together, they ran cars into ponds, they did all the wild things that Scott did back in those days. And then Scott went away to France, and leaving Ring behind. Ring was older than he was, Ring was in poor health, and Ring was a harder drinker than Fitzgerald. And while Fitzgerald was away, Ring Lardner died, uh, which was a blow to Scott. Um, and he wrote this for Cosmopolitan, of all magazines, uh, which it ran in 1932. It's from a little essay called Ring. At no time did I feel that I had known him enough or that anyone knew him. It was not the feeling that there was more stuff in him and that it should come out. It was rather a qualitative difference. It was rather as though, due to some inadequacy in oneself, one had not penetrated to something unsolved, new, and unsaid. That is why one wishes that Ring had written down a larger proportion of what was in his mind and in his heart. It would have saved him longer for us, and that in itself would be something. But I would like to know what it was, and now I will go on wishing. What did Ring want? How did he want things to be? How did he think things were? That's what I wanted to know about Fitzgerald and Hollywood. After the crack-up, after the worst has happened, he's lost everything. And then he gets up and he goes out to Hollywood to sort of pull himself up by his bootstraps by sheer talent and will alone. Um, He goes out there. He's $30,000 in debt to his agent, Harold Ober. um, And he has to find a way to pay these bills. And the only way is to work for the film industry. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM or Metro, as it was known in those days. 
Uh, there are two epigraphs to the book, both from Fitzgerald himself. The first is, there are no second acts in American lives. A very famous quote taken, people think, from the notes for The Last Tycoon, 1939 to 1940. But in fact, he'd written these during it for an essay uh, which was unpublished. He wrote it for, I believe it was uh, Esquire at the time. They didn't, they didn't use it, but it's about his early success in New York and how great it was. And then 10 years later, uh, of course, the stock market crashes, and that world that he knows is gone. It's an essay called My Lost City. There. Um, so he's always interested in how people change, and how people change especially with either success or failure. And we think of Gatsby, right? How does he respond to success? Or Nicole and Dick Diver, how do they respond to failure? Or even in The Last Tycoon, the unfinished novel about Monroe Starr, how does he deal with success? What is success? The second quote is from a Fitzgerald short story about Hollywood called Crazy Sundays. Nothing was impossible. Everything was just beginning. I'm going to read from the first chapter, which is called Chimney Rock. That spring he holed up in the Smokies, in a tired resort hotel by the asylum, so he could be closer to her. A bout of pneumonia over Christmas had provoked a flare-up of his TB, and he was still recovering. The mountain air was supposed to help. Days he wrote in his bathrobe, drinking Coca-Cola to keep himself going, holding off on the gin till nightfall, a small point of pride. Sipping on the dark veranda as couples strolled among the fireflies rising from the golf course. Outside of town, Highland Hospital crowned the ridgeline, a spired Gothic palace in the clouds, worthy of a bewitched princess. He couldn't afford it, as he couldn't afford the other private clinics they'd tried, but he pleaded poverty and hashed out a discount with the trustees, begging the money from his agent, an onerous form of credit borrowing against stories he'd yet to imagine. He had no choice. At Pratt, they left her too much alone. She'd strangled herself with a ripped pillowcase, nearly succeeding, the livid band across her windpipe a reminder. One night, while she was strapped to her bed, the Archangel Michael appeared, glowing, and told her the world would end unless she could move the seven nations to repent. She took to wearing white and memorizing the Bible. In her paintings, the faceless damned writhed in fire. At Highland, her new doctor believed in diet and exercise. No cigarettes, no sweets. Every day, the patients hiked to prescribed distance, sturdy nurses spurring them on like coaches. She lost weight, her skin tented over her cheekbones, her nose a blade, recalling that awful year in Paris, she whittled her body down, trying to remake herself for the ballet. Yet not manic, not frenzied like then, her knees bruised black, feet cracked from practice. After her insulin treatments, she was calm, subdued by sheer lack of energy. Instead of sinners, she painted flowers, big blousy blooms just as corrupt. She could sleep now, she said, a mercy he envied. Her cursive returned, neat lines running like waves down the page, instead of the bunched, slanted hand he'd come to dread. Uh, then we have a full page worth of beautiful exposition that you don't really need to hear at all. <laughs> it's gorgeous. It's, you know, beautiful assonance by way of James Salter, one of my favorite writers. Um, all you need to know is that he has a chance to go on. Hey, John, uh, you're late. It's one of my students from last week's class, late. He was early to every damn class. Um, um, 
he has a chance to go out to Hollywood and work for MGM uh, to pay off the debts, but he doesn't want to tell Zelda about this because it might upset her. Um, so he's looking now at Zelda, trying to see if she's well enough so that he can leave and not feel horribly, horribly guilty for leaving her. Let's see if I can see. Where is that elixir of life? There it is. With Zelda, everything was a test. For their anniversary, they were allowed to take a day trip to Chimney Rock. He was to be both husband and chaperone, charged with cataloging her conduct, speech, and intake. Observations he registered automatically, yet resented sharing, as if, after so long in captivity, they had a shred of privacy left. It was a balmy Saturday, the dogwoods frilled with pink, the visitor's lot busy with gussied-up loved ones toting picnic baskets. Dr. Carroll himself delivered her to the front desk, handing her over to Scott like a doting father. In her twenties, baby-faced and petite, she'd seemed girlish. She'd been an athlete and a dancer, a notorious flirt, her stamina and fearlessness irresistible. Now, just shy of thirty-seven, she was pinched and haggard, crone-like, her smile ruined by a broken tooth. Some well-meaning soul had fixed her hair for the occasion, gathering the unruly honey-blonde mop back into a knitted black snood, which sat cat-like on one shoulder, a style he'd seen on shop girls, but one she would never choose, especially since it made her face even sharper, hawkish. The carmine sundress was an old favorite, though it had faded from hard washing and hung on her, robe-like, the yoke of her collarbone hollowed, a sheer scarf knotted like a choker to conceal her throat. When he leaned down to greet her, she turned her face into his, her lips grazing his cheek. "'Thank you,' she said, pulling away as if he'd done her a favor. "'Happy anniversary. Oh, Dodo, happy anniversary.' It always surprised him to hear her soft Dixie lilt coming from this wizened stranger, as if hiding somewhere inside his fresh, wild Zelda still existed. The doctor congratulated them. How many years? Seventeen, she said, looking to Scott to check her math. Seventeen years, he confirmed, nodding, uncertain if this fact was happy. The number was as illusory as their marriage. As his wife, she'd now been hospitalized as long as not, and in fretful moments, the question of whether she'd been mad all along and he attracted to that madness unsettled him. Enjoy yourselves, the doctor said. We will, she said, and took Scott's hand, squeezing it as they walked through the vaulted lobby and out into the bright day, relinquishing it only when he opened the car door and helped her in like a footman. On her seat rested a present he'd bought at the hotel gift shop. Dodo, really, you needn't have. As he closed the door, he palmed the knob, silently locking it. It's nothing, a token. And here I didn't get you anything. She didn't wait, shucking the paper. If this is what I think it is, you devil, you know I can't resist peanut brittle. Pecan brittle. Oh, it's lovely, darling, but I don't think I'm allowed. I promise not to tell. You'll have to help me then to dispose of the evidence. Precisely. How quickly they were conspirators, as if it were their natural state. 
Together, in another age, they'd been famous for their fashionable trespasses, the stuff of magazine covers and scandal sheets, and perhaps because his fall had been less spectacular and far less punitive, at times like these a nostalgic guilt pricked him, as if, impossible as it was, he should have saved her. Uh, then we have four pages of driving. Driving around. Uh, my editor says, you know, what is it with you? Every chapter one, they're driving around. I'm like, you know, we're Americans. We're going places. This is the last section I'll read. And bear, it's a little longer, but bear with me. At Chimney Rock, the sun had brought out the throngs. Among the dungareed, overall tourists swarming the walkways, they were strangely formal, dressed for the theater or the philharmonic. Yet when they cleared the cherry trees and the great stone column rose into the sky above them, piled precariously as children's blocks, they stopped and shielded their eyes like everyone else. The rock stood alone, a chase of staircases stitching the cliff face behind it. High up, at the very top, outlined black against the clouds, a narrow catwalk spanned the final gap. The profusion of tiny people clamoring over the scaffolding reminded him of an ant farm. The idea of joining that mass dismayed him, and protectively, he thought of lunch. She was already heading for the stairs. Aren't you hungry? Come on, she taunted. And before he could argue, she was off, cutting through the other gawkers and taking the first flight at a gallop, her snood bouncing behind like a tail. He followed, trying to keep her in sight, but the doctor's regimen had worked. He wasn't entirely well, either. He spent too much time at his desk, smoked too much, drank too much, and by the second turning, he'd lost her. He knew she wouldn't stop. It was a game. The higher he climbed, already winded, the more he reassured himself she was just being the old, playful Zelda. He was sweating and shed his jacket, stripped off his tie. Once, in Macy's, around Christmas time, Scotty had gotten away from him. Now he felt the same helpless panic. He kept on, using the banister to haul himself up, resting on the landings, peering skyward, hoping to find her laughing at him from the catwalk. His fear, remote yet real, was that when he reached the top, she wouldn't be there. A crowd gathered where she'd climbed the rail and swan-dived. Once across the catwalk, he saw her immediately, her red dress a flag. She stood at the far end of the rock, bellied up to the rail, looking out over the valley with everyone else. When he slid in beside her, she covered his hand. Now that he'd stopped, he was pouring sweat, drops gathering in his eyebrows. You're getting old, Dodo. You always were faster than me. You should really take better care of yourself. I suppose that's partly my fault. I'm supposed to take care of you, aren't I? I'm afraid I've been a grave disappointment in that category. I can take care of myself. Oh, not hardly. We're supposed to take care of each other, he said. I don't want you to have to take care of me. I just want to go home. I know. I've been good, haven't I? You have. I try so hard, and then things go wrong, and I can't stop them. I wish I could. I know you do. You do? She asked. Of course. I'm the king of things going wrong, and I'm your queen. You are, he said, because though the throne had sat empty many years and the castle, like the kingdom, long since fallen, she was. Despite all they'd squandered, he would never dispute they were made for each other. 
On their way back to the catwalk, they came across a group of schoolchildren kneeling over sheets of paper, making charcoal rubbings. The rock was embossed with fossils, trilobites, and skeletal fish, evidence that all of this had once been underwater. Well, they're beautiful, she cooed, a judgment he resisted as sentimental. As she went from child to child like a teacher, praising each, he thought he should be more sympathetic. Wasn't every world ultimately a lost world, every memento a treasure? The descent seemed longer, and then in the racketing cafeteria they had to wait. The special was goulash with noodles. He made the comment that the food wasn't much better than the hospitals, expecting her to argue. She said nothing, kept chewing vacantly as if she hadn't heard. He leaned over his plate and waved his fork to get her attention. Even then, it took an effort to rouse herself. I'm sorry, darling, she said. I'm just tired. He was so used to watching for signs. He understood he was tired, too. Back at the car, the sun had moved. The pecan brittle had melted into a gluey mess, taking the shape of the box. You can wait till it hardens, he offered, then break it again. I shouldn't be eating it anyway. Once more, it felt like they were escaping, leaving the throngs and the crammed lot behind. They climbed the switchback road up the mountain, stopping at the top to appreciate the view and the rarefied quiet, sharing an illicit cigarette. Far below in the trough of the valley, Lake Lure sparkled, sunstruck. A few stray clouds draped shadows over the slopes, reminding him of Switzerland. Remember our chalet in Gestad? the one where Scotty split a chin open. He had been thinking of the antler chandelier and the great sooty fireplace and the eider duvet on their bed, but now he could picture the polished hardwood staircase and Scotty trying to climb it in her Dr. Denton's, the misstep and the solid knock of bone shocking them like an alarm. Strange how the past was both open and closed to them, but she'd remembered. So often she couldn't. I was thinking, he said, what do you think about Scotty coming down for a bit before she goes to camp? She dipped her head, drew a line in the dust with the tip of her shoe. She doesn't want to see me. Of course she does. I think this is a good opportunity. She might not be able to for a while. You're not making her. She wants to see you. If you think you're up to it, I think you are. I would like to see her. I figured. I wish I could tell you I'll be good for her. I understand, he said, and looked at her to seal the deal. She could be so reasonable. For an instant, he thought of kissing her cheek, but today especially feared she might misinterpret it. They gazed out over the silent vista, and then, after she'd taken a last drag of the cigarette and dropped it in the dust for him to crush, turned and headed back to the car. As they coasted down the far side, he said, I wonder if groundhogs like pecan brittle. Southern ones do. I can't speak for you Yankees. I believe they prefer peanut brittle. Oh, Dodo, it's been such a nice day. I don't want to go back. I know. Seventeen years, she mused. It doesn't seem that long. No, he said, though he could disagree. At the same time, he could feel the day waning and their moments alone together. Visiting was always hard, but these field trips were a torture, even more so when they went well. In the end, he was charged with returning her to her cloister. There was something of a surrender to it that chafed his honor, as if he should be fighting for her. 
all the way through the hot, flat town and up the long, winding hill. Instead of relief, he felt he was conspiring in his own defeat, a traitor to them both. He checked her in at the front desk. The doctor was busy with other visitors, and a chipper nurse took her from him, asking if they'd had a nice time. Very nice, Scott said. It's our anniversary, Zelda said. I know, the nurse said. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Happy anniversary, Dodo. Happy anniversary, he said, chastely embracing her, then letting go. Poor Dodo. Don't look like that. I'll see you next weekend. I'll be good. I promise. I'll talk to Scotty. Do, please. Till then, my love. She blew him a kiss and let the nurse lead her away through the doors toward the women's wing, leaving him alone again. Outside, he maundered to the car, sapped of purpose. Her pecan brittle sat in the back seat, evidence of his meager efforts. Later, on the darkened veranda, it would serve as his dinner. Monday, when he met with the doctor, he reported that she'd been fine. They'd gotten along. Her memory was sharp, her speech clear, her thoughts coherent. He didn't mention the cigarette or the pecan brittle or her manic dash up the stairs or her blank face as she chewed her goulash. The doctor seemed pleased and agreed that seeing Scotty would be good for her. But then, after Scott had successfully lobbied Scotty, Zelda attacked her tennis partner with her racket, breaking the woman's nose, and was moved to the locked ward. Scotty went off to camp as planned, and when Ober called and said Metro wanted him to come to New York for an interview, he took the first train from Asheville. For two full days, he was completely, rackingly sober and passed. Six months at a thousand a week. He wanted to tell Zelda face to face, but she was in isolation. The doctor forbade him from seeing her, an affront and a reprieve. He waited till the last minute, in fact, after he'd packed up and left town, composing the letter in the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans, across from Union Station. Dearest heart, he wrote, forgive me. I have to leave for now to pursue our fortunes. I wish there were any other way. Keep working and try to be good, and I will where I am. The next day, on Metro's ticket, he took the Argonaut west. That's all I got. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, that's, that's the old one. That's in paperback now. Uh, the new one is coming in April. Um, it's called City of Secrets. Um, it's set in Jerusalem in 1945, and it's about the combined Jewish underground and their resistance to the British mandate. Um, it's a book about political violence, about faith, about identity, um, and it owes a great deal, I think, to uh, Graham Greene and also to Joseph Conrad's The Secret Agent, if you know that book. Um, any questions at all? I can't answer, uh, you know, why Stephen Goskowski missed that point after touchdown. I can't. No, no one can answer that. I don't think even Stephen Goskowski. Um, but, uh, uh, or anything about the Red Sox, last place team, yeah? Um, how closely did you stick to the facts and what kind of liberties did you allow yourself? Um, the other question is, did you quote from, like, real life? 
Yeah, um, uh, I tried to stick as close as I could the, to the actual facts, the biographical facts, and I used Scott's timeline as basically the chassis for the book. So when he's working on a certain film at a certain time, he was in real life. When he's living at the Garden of Allah at that certain time, he was. Same thing with Malibu and all those other things. I looked for opportunities within his biography to fill in scenes that the biographies can't do. Now, Stephen King says that a book takes you away, and that's true while you're writing a book as well as reading a book. I wanted to be taken away to the Garden of Allah to see what it was like to live there, because we know that Dorothy Parker is living there at the same time that Scott's living there. Humphrey Bogart's living there at the exact same time. Uh, Scott and Dorothy had a thing, had a fling back in New York in the 20s, and here they are living close to each other 15 years later. How does that play out? We know they had parties by the pool. We know that it seems that most of the people there were practicing alcoholics at the time. Um, so we know that they're going to have some wild nights out by the pool. I want to be there. Biography can't do that. I mean, biography just says they were living there at the same time, and that's really it. Um, I want them to be dancing together underneath the stars with the music going and Bogart's drunk in the pool and you know, all, all, the, all the, the vividness that only fiction can bring, right? Only the point of view in fiction. How does it feel to be you? That's the question I always want to answer for the reader. How does it feel to be Scott Fitzgerald in Hollywood in 1937? I need to answer that question for the reader. I need to bring that emotional world across to the reader. If I can do that, then I might have something. Um, same thing with all the strange vacations that he takes with Zelda. Um, when they go to Myrtle Beach for a week, they actually did go to Myrtle Beach for a week, as crazy as it sounds. Uh, they go to Miami for a week and stay at the Biltmore there. Um, they go to her mother's house in Montgomery and have Christmas there. Um, and I want to be Fitzgerald undergoing all of that sort of madness there. Um, so I try to take as few liberties as possible. But I look for opportunities where I could fill things in. Um, with Bogart, it's a different thing because there's, there's almost no documentation whatsoever about Bogart and Fitzgerald, pretty much none. Um, one of the precipitating events in this book that I, that I bring in from history is a fight in the coat room of the uh, Coconut Grove nightclub in the Ambassador Hotel. Uh, Fitzgerald famously had a fight not with Bogart in that cloakroom but with Frank Morgan, the Wizard of Oz, uh, which I thought was just even more bizarre. Uh, no, we're, we're, you know... Stranger than fiction. So I just slid that over to Bogart and made that sort of a, you know, their meet, their meet cute between the two of them, and they go from there. So in that, I'm a, I'm a history buff, so did you ever have any fears that you No, but I, but I wrestled with that the entire time. And what, what line? Where is the line exactly between fiction and nonfiction? And where, where's that tightrope there? Um, I, I try to you know, work with Scott. What's on his mind? We have his letters, um, and we have Zelda's letters, and we have his letters to Max Perkins and to Ober and to you know, Hemingway and Tom Wolfe and all his friends. So what is foremost on your character's mind? When you're writing a made-up character... Sometimes that's really hard to figure out. You need to get really close to the character. In the case with Fitzgerald, we already have that documentation, so I can take some shortcuts and get there a little bit quicker so I know what he's thinking about at that point, or at least what he says he's thinking about to the people that know him, right? Every first, pe first person being an unreliable narrator there. Um, and also with the characterization of, say, Dorothy Parker or Hemingway or... Robert Benchley uh, or Bogart, we already have, as, as readers, we already have a sense of who those people are. In terms of Bogart, we can already hear his voice in our ears. So I can use that as a shortcut, but I can't, I can't overrun it, right? 
I can't make Bogart unlike the Bogart that you know. If I do, then you'll throw the book across the room. If Dorothy Parker isn't funny and catty and, and really good, then you'd be like, oh, that's a crappy Dorothy Parker. You know, same thing with Hemingway. If Hemingway is not egotistical and jerky and you know, full of himself and yet still a, a wonderful person, then it doesn't work. So it's very tough. It's a very hard way to go. And especially the big risk is Fitzgerald himself, right? It's a buy or die proposition. If you don't buy my Fitzgerald, then you're not going to read the book. You're not going to get through the book. You just, you'll just pitch it there. And to hopefully overcome that, I tried to learn as much as I possibly could about Fitzgerald and especially about Fitzgerald's sensibility because I'm not going to work with his voice. I'm not going to work first person. I'm not going to do it through his own voice. But I can use his sensibility and still have my own authorial voice over here, uh, which I can control there. And if I can calibrate it right, then maybe it'll work. And if it works, then it could be really great because that's what I wanted to know. How does it feel to be him then? Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's fraught. You know, the whole undertaking is fraught with problems, and it could just, could just fall on its face. Well, the, the, the small thing that surprised me the most was the fact that he'd worked on Gone with the Wind. I did not know that he'd worked on the script of Gone with the Wind. Completely news to me. Did not know. He was the ninth writer hired by uh, David O. Selznick to work on the script. The original was by Sidney Howard. And Selznick just kept bringing in more writers and more writers to fix it and fix it and fix it because Selznick was obsessed with it. This was going to be his great triumph. There, He hadn't had a great triumph before, and he was the son-in-law of Louis B. Mayer, who was the head of the studio, MGM. And uh, Louis B. Mayer said, here, you know, make this work. And Selznick was like, oh, I don't know what to do. And he was famous for taking amphetamines and staying up and pulling all-nighters with his writers and just going over and over and over the drafts. And here's Fitzgerald in terrible, terrible health, you know, trying to keep up with this speeded-up maniac there. And I thought, really, really interesting. Uh, the other thing that, that, you know, that sunk in after a while was just how, how well he was writing at the end. You know, a lot of the biographers say, oh, what a waste of time it was for Fitzgerald to go out there, and he sort of was throwing away his talents. And then you look at what happened with The Last Tycoon. The writing in The Last Tycoon is up there with the writing in Gatsby. It is gorgeous, spectacular. 150 pages he left us. Um, and even now, it's considered possibly the best Hollywood novel ever written. Right? And here's a guy who going there had nothing. He had nothing going on. He was drunk. He was broke. Now, he, he basically lost his love for the world and for writing. And he goes out there, he falls in love with Sheila Graham, and he falls back in love with writing. And as a writer, I can tell you, when the writing's going well, sometimes that's all that matters. And the writing was going very well, and he knew it. He was very excited about The Last Tycoon. Um, and I still am. And the only other book that people say could be the best Hollywood novel is Day of the Locust, right? Nathaniel West. Who does West sound his manuscript to, to read? Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald reads it and gives him a blurb for it because he thinks it's really wonderful and is relieved that he didn't use the same material that Fitzgerald himself was using. There. Or Last Night the Lobster. Well, I mean, very, those are two very, very different books. I mean, just way, way, way different. Um, and usually I'm looking for um, some sort of emotional organization for the book. And the emotional organization for Last Night the Lobster is Manny wants everything to go well. 
And he's going to do everything he possibly can to make things go well. And we, obviously, we know things are not going to go well. So he's going to, he's, you know, we've got a lot of plates spinning in the air, and he's going to keep running after them. You know, and just him trying to do that, being the responsible guy that he is, that's enough to get us through the book because it's so small. It's so short. It's like 101 pages in manuscript, so it's tiny there. So the container is the double shift. The organization is many wanted things to be perfect. In terms of Emily, it's a much larger, more sprawling book, and that's a life story. That's her whole life, and it turns on the conceit of we get to an age, we want to look back at our life and say, how did we do? You know, how do we do by the people closest to us? Were we good to them? Were we good enough for them? And so in terms of emotional organization, it's much trickier. In terms of the container, it's just all over the place. Um, so I decided instead of having large sections, there'd be very small sections which would work like a box of chocolates, right? You eat one, you eat another, and they're like bonbons. There are a lot of resting places for the reader throughout it. And just getting close to Emily. If I can get close to Emily and, and sort of see what's really on her mind from time to time, um, then the book might work. But the organization and, and container are very, very different and kind of scattershot there. I, I think something like Last Night the Lobster is much easier uh, just because it, it, it's not – you don't have to do that, that, that tightrope walker. Or Fitzgerald said that all writing is like swimming underwater you know, and not coming up for air. And, and something like Emily, it's swimming underwater for a very, very long time and just hoping that the reader will stay with you there. Um, and you try to reward the reader with, you know, the quality of your observations, the quality of the insights, and, and you know, with the character. And, and, and it doesn't hurt that there's a dog, right? <laughs> you know, the dog brings the comedy. Did a real person inspire Emily alone? Did a real, many real persons inspired Emily alone. Certainly my mother inspired it. My mother-in-law, my grandmothers, my aunt. Um, but once you start, you know, getting down on the page and Emily takes on a life of her own and she changes. So even from the very first chapter of Wish You Were Here, which I wrote in 1999, uh, she begins to change there into her own character and her own person with her own history and that the weight and extension of her history there. Um, and now, by now I've been writing about her for, what, 18 years. Um, so I know her very, very well. Um, which is which is wonderful. You know, I can spend a lot of time with her. And in fact, I mean, Knockwood, the, the book I'm working on now is going to be her husband's book, Henry's book, because Henry and Emily alone has been dead now for eight years. And wish you were here; he's been dead for about a year. We don't know a whole lot about Henry. He's kind of the ghost that hangs over everything, right? Like Hamlet's father. Um, so I want to go back, and I'm giving Henry his own book, his own life story, there. So we'll be going back in time in Pittsburgh, back to the 20s and the 30s, and, and we'll, we'll find out how they met and their romance and all that sort of stuff. We'll, we'll see. We'll see if it works out. Right now it's way, way, way early, but I enjoy that. Yeah, too much. Way too much research. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 not a nonfiction writer. I'm not a journalist, and I didn't know. Uh, journalists know that the more sources you have, the more confusing your story becomes. I did not know that. So I wanted to hear from everybody, and I ended up with this, this gigantic amount. And it was it's primary research because there hadn't been a full length history, nonfiction history of the of the circus fire done yet. So I said I have to establish the timeline. I have to you know figure out you know the the map of the whole thing. So I had to come up with all that stuff, and, and I had a great time doing it. It's the engineer in me, you know. Um, but what inspired me was um, 
the photo of Emmett Kelly wearing his weary willy uh, makeup, and he's carrying a bucket, and behind him you can see there's things in flames and the smoke pouring out of them. And I ran across that, that photo in a Life magazine from 1944. I was doing research on the novel A World Away, um, in which to do the research I went back and I just looked at all the magazines from that era and among many other things. But that... Um, that photo just stuck in my mind. It's like, that's really odd. You know, I didn't know about this circus fire. And that's when I was living in Oklahoma. And a year later, we moved to Hartford, Connecticut. And I, th- and I thought, oh, that's where this, the circus fire was. I need to find out more about this. So I started going around to the libraries and asking people, you know, is there a book uh, about the circus fire? And Alice Pence, my uh, reference librarian at the Avon Public Library, um, she goes, you know, no, we don't have one. I said, well, let's, let's interloan one. Let's get one from you know the the state library. So, you know, she says, no, 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 there isn't one. No one has written a book about the circus fire. And I was like, well, that's crazy. You know, this huge weird event that killed 167 people, changed the fire laws for the, the whole U.S. Um, certainly changed Hartford and Hartford being the insurance capital of the world. They're like, how could that possibly happen there? And then I, I started talking to people, and if they didn't know somebody that was in it, they knew someone that almost went. Right? They almost went to the circus fire, but it was really hot that day, so they went to the movies instead. So even people that weren't there had some connection to it. And so I put a little ad in the Hartford Current on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, it cost a lot of money. It was crazy. It was like a little tiny ad that said, you know, if you have any information about the 1944 Hartford Circus Fire, please contact me. And all of a sudden, I was just inundated with stuff. Just Stuff just poured in, just poured in. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is a really big story. And I thought... I'll take all this, this material and I'll give it to one of my friends who writes nonfiction because that's, you know, they'll know, they'll know what to do with it. And they're like, oh, I, want no, I want no part of that project because it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually I just said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do this. I'm going to try to write this um, and just sort of felt my way into it. And um, it's, it's overly detailed. I think it's a little cluttered. But as primary material, I think it's a good place for, for further books to be written about it. Later on, they can use that as a source. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, it was fascinating, and it, and it led me finally to writing about Emily um, because I talked to, I interviewed all these people who were in their 70s and 80s and 90s, and, and they told me, yes, about the circus fire, but also about what was happening now in their lives and in their neighborhoods and with their children and grandchildren. And I, and I just started thinking about how rich those worlds were, and I think that's where Emily really came from. When did you start thinking of yourself as a professional writer with all the different careers you've had? Uh, when did I start thinking of myself as a professional writer? Um, when did you think you could make a living at this? You make a living? Well, that's, that's the future, Tony. I can't see that. <laughs> I can't see that. Um, no, it was, it's, it's always a hustle. It's always a hustle. You know, it, it really is. Um, but it, sometimes you get lucky. You, get, you catch breaks, right? I mean, writing Faithful with Stephen King about the Red Sox. In 2004, they decide to win the World Series that year. Yeah. Of all years, they, they do it. Complete accident. Um, yeah, they backed into it. What, but, about, yeah. what about selling movie rights to Snow Angels? Was that like a big change for you? No, not really, um, because they, they paid me like peanuts for them. Um, yeah, and that, that money's gone like that. I mean, you, you, between taxes and your agent and just it's just, it's gone there. I mean, think of Fitzgerald, right? Fitzgerald in 1920 is the highest paid writer in America. 
1925, he turns in Gatsby to Max Perkins. He says, Max, can you lend me $1,000? I just, you know, right now we can't pay for the place that we're living. This is 1925, right? This isn't even later on when he gets, you know, heavy, heavy into debt, but it's always a hustle there because you don't know where the paycheck's coming from. If I were teaching, that might be something else because then you could sort of bank the teaching money. You know, you know, yeah, no, man, I mean, teaching, teaching at a private college, right? Right. Uh, years ago, years ago, John Casey called me one day and he goes, come on, you can teach in Virginia, you'll be rich. You know, well, we'll make you rich. And I was like, teaching in Virginia, I was like, well, the kids were in high school and I didn't want to move them out of the high school. They've been moved around so much. It's like, let's just stay here. But I can see how it'd be nice to have, you know, a, you know, low six-figure job at a major <laughs> institution like that. You'd have, you'd have insurance and you'd have, you know, a 401k and all that stuff. But, you know, I like sitting in my sweatpants at my desk. You know, that's what I do. And I like writing more than teaching. I like teaching, but it doesn't compare to writing. You know? But professional, you're never really professional because you're always starting from scratch. You're always starting from zero. You may have a few more shortcuts, but you're, you're always capable of writing badly. Every day, every single day, you're capable of writing badly. Every writer is. You know, if you if you look at some of Faulkner's books or Virginia Woolf's books, you know they're not all good. Some of them are just awful. Um, it's art. It's not supposed to be easy. Not, you can't sort of duplicate it and just sort of chunk it out. Um, so every day I, I write badly, and then I say I, c- I can make it better tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and just stay patient. Um, as a novelist, I have a very high threshold for boredom. You know, I look at the same sentences over and over and over, and I fix them and fix them and fix them and fix them and fix them until I can't fix them anymore, and then I give them to somebody else, and then someone else says, oh, it's, it's crap, it's terrible. <laughs> you know, might as well just cut it. You can't fix this. You, you know, just get rid of it, and then I'll get rid of it. So, yeah, it's, it's hard to be professional when you can't even write a sentence, you know, a good sentence. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you you so much. A last word. One, thank you for supporting your local independent bookstore. And two, please support your public library. Right? That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.